Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm Marshall Poe, the editor-in-chief of the network, and each week we scour the internet looking for interesting books, and we interview the authors of those books. This week, I'm very pleased to say we have Darren McMahon on the show, and we'll be talking about his really terrific new book, Divine Fury, A History of Genius. And I say really terrific. Uh, that should be underscored because this is a really marvelously written book. I don't say that about every book that I read, but Darren really has a writer's touch. It's it's very entertaining just uh, on the uh, literary level. Of course, uh, as an intellectual artifact, it is absolutely terrific. And the subject, genius, has a surprising history. And I have to say, as somebody who who studied intellectual history, I, I didn't really know it. I, I learned a lot from this book. And again, I don't say that about every book that I read, but I really did learn a lot. And I hope that you guys go out and buy it and read it. So, Darren, let me welcome you to the show. Thanks so much, Marshall. It's great to be here. Could you kick off the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Uh, well, I am the, the Ben Weeder Professor of History at Florida State. Uh, I'm a historian by training. Uh, I was educated at Berkeley and Yale, um, grew up in California, um, and I, I do intellectual history, history of ideas, really with a focal point in the 18th century, although I span backwards from there and forward to, to the present day. Mm-hmm. Well, one thing I really liked about this book is, is the sweep of it. Uh, you start at the beginning, and I think that's terrific. <laughs> I, know, I, I know that we're not trained like that. I, I don't know. I went I went to Berkeley as a graduate student, and we're definitely not trained like that. So uh. No, uh, and in fact, I wasn't trained that way either. And, and in fact, one of the things that I'm trying to do both in, in this book and my last book, which was a history of the concept of happiness, and again, I began at the beginning or uh, at least far back and, and went to the present day. One of the things I'm trying to do in this book and the last book is revive a, a kind of history of ideas that sort of fell out of fashion um, in the middle of the last century and uh, is being revived now um, by myself. Uh, my colleague David Armitage at Harvard is, is doing this kind of uh, work as well, and uh, we're trying to make it intellectually uh, respectable and defensible, but also also fun again. So I, I love this stuff cool. personally. Yeah, I, I really like this kind of thing. Um, I know that uh, and here we're a little bit inside baseball. I'm sorry to the listeners, but uh, I remember when I first found the Dictionary of the History of Ideas. You know that four-volume thing? Sure, absolutely. No, well, yeah. I love that thing. And then there's the German version, which is even better, called Grundliche Begriffsgeschichte. I don't know if you know that one, but like... I do. I know it as well. It's absolutely incredible. Like I, I looked at that thing. I was like, that's amazing. How do they do that? Yeah. And uh, it's really interesting to see how these concepts change over time, and we don't usually think about it, but they, they really change dramatically. And, um, and I, I find it just absolutely fascinating. And it makes the protagonist of the story sort of the idea rather than exactly. the people. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, as I say, I think there's a, a kind of an adventure in that um, of the grand sweep of ideas. And that's something that an older history of ideas definitely did. Uh, and we're trying to revive that. And the, the, the kind of, you know, the tendency in the last several decades has been really focused quite precisely on, on a specific context. And a lot of good can come from that. But uh, I think something gets lost sometimes when you don't take account of the, of the grand sweep. And uh, hopefully that's what we recover here. Yeah. And it's also, I should say, so interesting. I mean, I'm a certain age now, I, I remember terms that used to mean one thing and now they mean something else. 
I mean, it happens in my own life, you know, really dramatically different. And it's, it's pretty, so it's interesting to see it in a very long sweep. So uh, you're doing great work here. Uh, tell us why you wrote Divine Fury, A History of Genius. Why genius? Yeah. Well, uh, as I said earlier, I'm not, I'm a, really, I was trained as a historian of the 18th century, um, and all my work to date is sort of focused on the 18th century as a kind of critical hinge period or, or, or um, pivot of, uh, of modernity. I see, you know, the, the ancient and the modern world sort of coming to the head, uh, coming together in the 18th century. And in uh, the 18th century, then there's a kind of critical time in shaping the way we think about, uh, about a whole uh, variety of concepts. So my first book, Enemies of the Enlightenment, was about the way in which uh, conservative politics gets um, articulated really for the first time self-consciously in the 18th century out of opposition to the Enlightenment. Um, and then my second book looked at, at happiness, which is a critical 18th century notion. Um, pursuit of happiness, of course, is in the Declaration of Independence, and it's a, uh, a widespread notion in the 18th century, which continues, I think, to have important resonance today. And genius, it turns out, is one of these uh, great big 18th century ideas as well. Uh, it has a backstory uh, that goes all the way back to the ancient world, uh, and yet it's really only in the 18th century that the genius emerges as a kind of new model or um, cultural hero, a model of the, of the highest human type. So it was sort of on my radar screen, um, but it also seemed like happiness in this regard to be uh, a subject that um, had an appeal maybe uh, you know, to more than simply five or six of my colleagues. Uh, <laughs> I remember after I, I finished my first book, you know, my parents who had always probably wanted me to go to law school, do something yeah. sensible, you know, or become a law school. <laughs> Um, they looked at the book and they sort of scratched their head and they said, well, this is great, but, you know, um, uh, can you write something for us? <laughs> you know? uh, and I tried to do that in happiness and, and, and genius struck me as a, a subject that had a broader appeal um, and also a kind of real uh, intellectual heft that would sustain the interest over six or seven years, which is what I've spent working on. This yep. Yep. That's why I say, yeah, books are a part of your life. You marry them as one of mine. Yeah, you do. You really get married to them. <laughs> um, so. Uh, let's start with some distinctions that we, we make in intellectual history and history of ideas that are not normally made in history, and that is between the concept and the marker of the concept. That is the name for it. And let's talk about genius in the ancient world. Uh, at least in Greek times, it wasn't called genius, right? Right. So, uh, so you're right. There's a, there our modern concept of genius, which we associate with originality, with you know innovation, with with creation, and of course with the individuals who do those things. Um, and as I said, this is a, a modern concept, and yet the word is old. Uh, the word's been around um, since, I and mean, we have the, the first recorded traces of it are in the uh, second century BC. Uh, it's a Latin term spelled just like we spell genius, although probably pronounced uh, genius. That's the, the convention now, at least. Uh, and the Roman notion of genius was very different, uh, although, as I try to argue, not entirely unrelated from our modern conception of genius. The Roman genius um, was a, uh, a guardian spirit, a guardian, something like a guardian angel. And in fact, the Christian and, and, and Jewish notion of guardian angels has uh, parallels to this Roman concept. Um, the uh, guardian spirit and also god of birth. The genius was conceived as uh, a sort of spiritual um, double uh, or uh, um, little god who was present and attendant uh, at the birth of, of males. And that's the other thing I should flag here. In the Roman concept, uh, only men had a genius. 
Um, and uh, that's a signal uh, of what will in fact endure for a very long time as a kind of gendered aspect to the history of genius. Uh, it tends to be associated uh, for all the wrong reasons with the man and men alone. In any case, the, in the Roman conception, um, uh, males were, were thought to have a, a, a god of birth who, who were present at birth and then throughout life sort of watched over them, acted as intercessors to the divine, shuttled messages back and forth, um, and so on. Um, as I point out in the book, um, the origins of our birthday celebration probably lie in this, uh, what Ovid um, called the Festum Geniale, the, uh, the yearly uh, rite of, um, of sacrifice that one made to one's god of birth. And uh, that rite involved usually um, placing out some little cakes and maybe burning some candles and incense, pouring out a libation of wine to celebrate hmm. one's, uh, one's guardian. And that's probably the origins of our own birthday celebration, which to this day has cake and candles. Mm-hmm. And just to fill in a, a blank here, the, the Romans uh, got a lot from the Greeks, and they cribbed this notion from the Greeks under another name, if I remember correctly. Right. I, right. So the, the Greeks uh, also have a notion of, of a spiritual guardian uh, or a uh, kind of divine um, tutelary spirit. And in fact, I would argue that almost all cultures do. Uh, and this is quite a striking departure mm-hmm. from the 18th century when people get rid of these figures. But the, the Greeks called them daimonis, uh, in the plural, daimon in the singular, or daimonian in the diminutive. And uh, I'll, I'll come back to why that's important in a second. And a daimon is, is really the, the root of our modern term, demon. Um, but in the ancient world, for the Greeks in the in a pre-Christian era, it doesn't have the exclusive connotation of evil that it will develop in the Christian connotation. And yet, there, there always is the potential uh, in the Greek concept for something mischievous. Um, one has a, a, a guardian spirit, a guardian daimon in the Greek world, or a genius in the, for the Romans, and that spirit uh, may, you know, look after us in a good way and lead us toward the divine, uh, but it also might be malicious uh, and, and lead us astray. And so, from very early on in the history of, of genius, both the word and the concept, there's an association to evil or the, uh, the propensity for evil that um, will play out in the, in, in the grand history. Um, I, I, I gave you the dominion of the word daimon because the most famous uh, daimon of the ancient world is that of Socrates, uh, who is deemed by the oracle at Delphi to be the, uh, the wisest man on, on earth, um, the wisest man living. Uh, and he was believed by himself and by his followers, at least if we can trust Plato, who's our main source of information about <laughs> Socrates, to have had his own uh, private daimon uh, that that prevented him from doing things he shouldn't do that sort of spoke to him. Um, we don't know a whole lot about this daimonian, uh, and, and Plato always refers to it uh, as in the diminutive, as this little little god. Um, and indeed, it's, it's, it's invoked uh, when Socrates is, is tried for treason, um, uh, that he, he had, he invoked or spoke uh, of, of different or strange gods, and this in, in part is a reference to his daimonian. In any case, the legend uh, grows up after his death, and it's uh, uh, talked about quite extensively by Roman authors who call it, in fact, uh, Socrates genius, uh, his genius, um, that the, this private god did more than simply prevent him from doing this or that, but, but actually um, you know, inspired him with, uh, with, with truth that uh, gave him special insight uh, into, uh, into the workings of the world, into uh, the workings of the divine. And so this legend grows up that, that a, a great man like Socrates is in part great because he has a great 
double. He has a great guardian. He has a great genius. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So just to be clear about this, uh, well, let me ask. Um, in this conception, the Greco-Roman conception, does everyone have a genius? So every male, as I said. Every male has, has a genius, genius, yes. Right? Uh, but... <clears throat> As the story of Socrates illustrates, um, some genii are, are better than others, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and in fact, the, the, the genius or genius is thought of as a kind of um, a, a spiritual representation of the self. Um, and it's a, a kind of spiritual embodiment uh, of the soul. Uh, and mm-hmm. indeed, um, there's all kinds of discussion about, well, uh, does the genius... Um, you know, so it, does it hover around us, outside us? Is it a separate being, or is it actually the soul, or a, a representation of the soul? And um, there's much discussion about this, and Plato and others talk about um, the daimon as being a part of the soul, or the highest part of the soul, the, the rational or reasonable part of the soul. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the, the larger point is that the, the, the genius or, or daimon in all these conceptions is thought of as uh, part of the self. Um, the Romans also have this critical term, uh, ingenium, uh, which is derived from just from the prefix in, in, and then genium, which mm-hmm. for those who remember their Latin is the accusative form of the, uh, of the noun genius. And it really just means the genius in us. And the Romans use that phrase to describe natural talent, as opposed to talent that might be learned or acquired through training. Your ingenium is your ability, is your capacity, right? And they recognize that some people have, um, you know, innate capacities for uh, art or for uh, rhetoric or for mathematics or what have you that others don't. Mm-hmm. And the um, the parallel with the, the history of the Genius or Daimon is that um, a great being like Socrates or like Octavian or like uh, Brutus will have a greater uh, genie, greater guardian spirit. Mm-hmm. Um, so the guardian spirit is a kind of um, outward measure of, uh, of, of, of inner, inner strength and worth. Mm-hmm. Well, you've sort of anticipated my question, and that is, uh, and people often ask this in the history of ideas. Okay, so th- that term, the term that we use, uh, which is genius or genius or daimon, uh, did not refer to what we think of as genius. But no. did they have another concept that was more or less the a sort of a synonym of <laughs> our conception of genius? Well, yes and no. So uh, on the one hand, I want to make a distinction about what what emerges roughly in the 18th century, a Mm -hmm. modern notion of genius based on originality and and, and creative capacity. And we can uh, talk later, if you'd like, about what makes that distinct in Mm -hmm. the 18th century. But there's no question that there are uh, parallels and precedents, and in fact, parallels and precedents that are in the 18th century uh, and and before looked to as, as explicit sort of you know, precursors of genius. Uh, and they're really kind of come in two main forms. Uh, there's one, uh, the idea that which actually gives my book its title, uh, of divine mania or divine fury. Uh, this is Plato's term for the kind of um, power that fills a, a poet or a prophet or a, a philosopher or a thinker uh, that is infused from outside, infused by a muse or a god, fills them up, right, with a, a kind of uh, a godlike power. Um, and so there's a recognition that, say, a great poet uh, like Homer um, <clears throat> Is greater than others, and indeed is is godlike. He's 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 he's, he's superhuman, um, but he's godlike because the gods 
assist him. Homer himself, or the you know the the, the collection of uh, authors who contributed to his mm-hmm. life that we refer to collectively as Homer, tells us this you know right in the beginning of of, of the Iliad and the Odyssey, both of which uh, begin really with incantations. I have to say it's kind of an irony that the Western literary tradition begins with a invocation to a god, sing in me muse, mm-hmm. right? The man of twists and turns, right? Um, and uh, Homer is, is is beseeching the god to kind of fill him. Uh, uh, with with uh, with divine um, fury, right, and, and, and put him into this kind of ecstatic state of inspiration. So that's one way of thinking about um, uh, about uh, godlike or creative power uh, that has a long history. It's <clears throat> that view is maintained uh, by Christians and it's revived in the Renaissance, um, and we continue to this day, of course, to, to use the word inspiration, which literally um, means uh, to be breathed into. Right, and inspirare is the Latin mm-hmm. root that just means to breathe, and so it's as if you're filled by the breath of a god. Mm-hmm. Now, what's interesting in, in Plato's conception is that um, he uses this description in some ways um, uh, derog- in, in a derogatory way, and that is that he conceives of, of poets as not having anything of their own to offer. They're simply filled up uh, from the outside, but they themselves <laughs> are empty vessels, right? Um, and Plato famously, of course, is concerned about poets. He, he, yeah, he doesn't like them at all, really, yeah. Right. Well, yeah. He, I mean, he, he understands how seductive they can be. He understands their power. It's one of the reasons why famously he doesn't want to have a poet in the Republic, because um, they can lead people astray with their words. Um, and he, he recognizes full well the beauty and power of language. But he's denigrating poets in part because he sees them as these empty vessels, right? Uh, and then wants to validate philosophy, a craft, uh, a technology that can be learned and acquired. I flag that here, though, because Plato then uh, associates right from the beginning um, uh, this kind of ecstatic fury, this divine fury, uh, with with a sort of possession, uh, alien possession, with a kind of madness, uh, and then also with the capacity uh, for evil again, because one may be possessed by a malicious god or spirit, a demon that can lead us astray. Mm-hmm. So that's one set of you know uh, important and kind of powerful precedents that get revived and, and played out in, in modern conceptions of genius. The other refers to this idea of natural or inherent talent um, that the, the Romans described as ingenium. Uh, and there's a long history here as well. Again, it goes back to the Greeks. Pindar, one of the early uh, poets, is already asking, um, you know, what is it that gives people creative uh, poetic ability? Uh, And there is this tradition of inspiration, but there's also the idea that some people just have it and some people don't, right? That that nature trumps nurture. One thing that's interesting in the ancient world is that you get... um, Around Aristotle, and then uh, later with with people like Galen, the uh, Roman um, medical theorist, a whole idea of the humors, right? The idea that the body is composed of different humors, right? Uh, Blood and yellow bile and black bile and so forth. Uh, And that one's makeup, one's personality is in part a reflection of your humoral makeup. Well, there's a text that was very, for a long time, attributed to Aristotle, and we've only figured out relatively recently that he probably didn't write it himself. It's called a text called The Problems. Uh, so now we refer to it as the pseudo-Aristotelian text, The Problems, in which the author asks sort of what they conceived of scientific as scientific questions. 
And there's a, a problem, problem 30, um, in, uh, in this text where uh, the pseudo-Aristotelian author asks, why is it uh, that the people of eminence in philosophy and uh, in poetry and statecraft and military affairs are always of a melancholic um, temperament? In other words, they have a superabundance of black bile. And there's the assumption here that the people of eminence um, in, in, in different fields have something in common, have something physiologically in common. They have uh, too much black bile. And that a side effect of having too much black bile is melancholy, is sadness or uh, a, a kind of uh, uh, depression or, or, or mental instability uh, that's a side effect of genius. And so there's another uh, warrant here for this very old idea that genius and madness uh, or instability go, go together. So that tradition gets developed over the, the centuries, as does this idea of inspiration and the difference between possessing genius and being possessed um, by some outsider alien force, although the, the point I try to make in the book is that very often they're thought of as going together. Um, when Pindar writes of the poets who have, have the stuff, have the nature, um, he thinks that you know people who have the stuff draw upon themselves the favor of the gods, and they draw inspiration and vice versa. Um, uh, a man like Homer is inspired by the gods in part because he has natural stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, those, those two things are thought of as going together, and they're also thought of uh, as being both divine gifts. Whether one is, is blown into by a god or one has uh, been given uh, by, by favor or grace, uh, great powers at birth, they're both thought of as divine gifts, something that are greater than, uh, than the mere human. And that um, tradition endures for a very long time, and in fact, I try to argue, doesn't ever really go away, that the, the notion of genius always has this association to, um, to, to the superhuman, to, to the divine, to the religious. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, let's move forward to the Christian world uh, and talk a little bit about how these concepts, the set of concepts, and they, they define each other, um, as concepts often do, uh, how uh, they are adapted and adopted by Christian thinkers. Sure. So, uh, you know, on the one hand, um, uh, all the gods and spirits of the pagan world um, have to be accounted for, uh, and they are accounted for. Uh, they're just made into uh, evil demons. Right? And, and all diamonds become demons, right? And really, the entire pantheon of the Greek and uh, Roman world are, are, you know, included in a Christian conception of the universe. They're just rendered evil beings. And this is, you know, this central irony at the heart of the Christian tradition, which is a monotheistic uh, tradition um, on the surface, and yet that makes a space and room and allotment for all these lesser gods, right, uh, of a former pagan world. So that happens. Um, the cult of the Genius is outlawed, um, and um, you know the the worship of uh, all other pagan uh, deities, of course, is prescribed. Um, and yet, uh, as I try to show uh, in the book, the uh, Christian world retains a place for the cult of the Genius. Um, and retains a place uh, for these notions of, uh, of divine uh, fury or um, kind of inborn uh, capacity. On the one hand, the cult of the saints and then the cult of guardian angels uh, can be shown, and I, I show, uh, to grow directly out of this pagan notion of a divine or spiritual double. The patron saint becomes a kind of god of one's spiritual birth, who uh, oh, looks after us, who acts as an intercessor with the divine, uh, can lead us uh, to the good. 
Um, and angels uh, and guardian angels do the same thing, but there's always the potential that a guardian angel will uh, lead us astray. And you know, when I when I lecture on this in public, I sometimes show a, a still from the the film uh, Animal House, and you know, there's that famous scene where the pledge is lying over the uh, body of a kind of passed out young woman. And he's deciding whether he should take advantage of her, and uh, you know, uh, uh, an angel appears on one shoulder. And says, no, no, don't, don't, don't do it, don't do it. And then a devil appears on the mm-hmm. other. Well, you know, we laugh at this, but there's a long tradition of that that endures, uh, you know, uh, into the 17th century uh, of thinking of all human beings as having a, a specific guardian demon or genius or angel uh, and, um, uh, you know, being pulled in both directions as a way of kind of thinking about the, the psychology of the self. Um, and so with that uh, endurance also comes the, the sort of idea that if one could speak uh, to one's higher angels um, or one could tap the power of the demons, uh, one might um, uh, gain possession of, uh, you know, of, of higher knowledge or higher truths about mm-hmm. the universe. So I mm-hmm. follow this kind of attempt to get in touch with these spiritual fiends, uh, these spiritual beings through the Renaissance when you get really the revival of a kind of witchcraft. Um, I talk about one uh, guy in particular. He's a, a, a magus, right? The magus, the, uh, like a magi. Um, <clears throat> of the Renaissance period by the name of Trithemius, who may have been the model or one of the models for Faust, right? And uh, there's, of course, an old Germanic legend of Faust that, that gets written about by Christopher Mar- Marlowe and then later by Goethe in the 19th century. Um, but the, the legend is, is interesting. It's, you know, a man who literally wants divine knowledge, uh, and in order to, you know, to to possess it, to, to find it, makes a pact with the devil and is, of course, then led astray at the peril of his soul, um, which reiterates and reaffirms this long-standing uh, suspicion that, you know, the search for higher knowledge may be fraught with danger, right? And that may, may lead one astray. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So all these are ways in which the, the kind of Christian world continues and, and adapts um, the pagan concepts. The, the notion, as I say, of a divine fury or divine inspiration or ingenium um, can also be made to fit very easily into a Christian conception, and they are. Divine fury simply becomes uh, divine revelation or uh, um, inspiration of grace or uh, of the Holy Spirit. And in fact, in the Renaissance, um, uh, a writer by the name of Marsilio Ficino, uh, who's a, a Florentine kind of Renaissance man, uh, he, you know, he's a medical doctor and he's a philosopher and translator and uh, rhetorician a really important figure, almost single-handedly uh, revives Plato's notion of, uh, of the divine um, divine fury. Uh, he translates Plato's works, and he makes it a kind of central uh, concern uh, in, the, in, the, in the Renaissance uh, going forward. And there's also a great deal of speculation um, at the time of the Renaissance about what ingenium really is, right? What the special power is, uh, and, and, and how is it that it comes about. And in that tradition, too, there's also uh, an explicit engagement with this older theory of the humors that I talked about. So these pagan uh, notions stay, stay around for a long time. They're Christianized, but they're um, sort of brought into a, a Christian conception of the world. Mm-hmm. I mean, one thing I found kind of interesting is that <clears throat> I don't know when it happened, and you can tell me. I don't remember from the book. Uh, but at some point, the church institutionalizes this sort of personal... Um, 
uh, attendant. I don't know what to call it, spiritual attendant. A in guardian, the form of guardian yeah, angel. Guardian, yeah. yeah, I mean, in terms of name days or saints days, you know, in the Orthodox tradition, I'm a Russianist, so I know this. The day yeah. on which you're born has a saint associated with it. And that is your Absolutely. saint. Yeah. And so they, exactly. And it's, yeah, it's your spiritual guardian of your spiritual birth, right? Yeah. Who uh-huh. remains with you. Yeah. yeah. Well, so the cult of the saints, I mean, you know, I, I don't have a specific date for you, but, you know, in the late antique period already, it's, you know, um, uh, it, it's central. And it's, you know, I, I, I quote a line, there's a, um, a Roman grammarian who says at one point, by the name of Therius, who says at one point, um, nullus loci sine genio, there's, there's not a place uh, in the Roman world without a genius, because the Romans had this conception of genius not only for individuals, but for places uh, and for corporations. You probably heard the phrase genius loci, a genius of place. Mm-hmm. These were sort of you know spiritual guardians that looked after um, army platoons and they looked after the Senate and they looked after particular springs and, um, you know, bridges and so forth. Well, in the same way, uh, by the, you know, the, the early Middle Ages, there's nullis loci sine sancto. There's no place without a saint and mm-hmm. uh, guardian and patron saints are seen to watch over corporations and, um, and groups and as well as towns and, 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 and cities and, uh, and indeed nations. And this is important in its own right. There's an idea that, you know, there are patron saints for uh, collectivities. And um, as I try to argue later, the genius, the modern genius, in some ways takes over this role. And we, we conceive of kind of um, geniuses as patron saints for um, countries. So Shakespeare, in some, some respects, is a kind of patron saint of the English and uh, Edison of the Americans and so on and mm-hmm. so forth. Mm-hmm. And not to put too much weight on this point, but I think we should say that uh, all of this is an accretion. That is, uh, these saints and these name days and this other stuff, because it has no uh, textual foundation or biblical, at least in the New Testament. There's just nothing about any of this. Right. I mean, and we could complicate that a little bit. I mean, I, I cite, you know, there's a famous... That there are there are references to doubles, um, and um, but you're right, it is an accretion by and large. Uh, although I think you know quite a natural. Sure, no, I agree with that completely. Um, but yeah, I mean, yeah. I'm just thinking. I was raised a Lutheran, so I was yeah, you know, I look at it like it's not there, you know. So, I, so um, we don't have names, right? Raised. Yeah, right, right. And of course, this is that's important in its own right because, as I try to show, one of the things that happens beginning in the Protestant Reformation is there's a critique and criticism of precisely all these figures, right? All these figures who have filled the universe and have acted as kind of intercessors between God the Father and uh, mortal human beings, um, but who've been, you know, particularly in the Middle Ages, sort of pumped, uh, pumped, uh, they pumped into the universe, demons and, 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 and genie, um, in fact, by the Renaissance, are even talking about good demons, which would have just been a horrific contradiction in terms to the early Christians. Um, and when Luther and company come around in the Protestant Reformation, they say, hey, look, there's no warrant for thinking of all these. Mm-hmm. You know, beings. There's no warrant for thinking about guardian angels. There's no warrant for thinking about saints. The cult of the saints is ridiculous. This is a kind <laughs> of uh, fetishism, and we need to get rid of it. Well, they get rid of it. Um, and all the but, beautiful art associated with it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I'm a Catholic, so I'm, you know, I'm with you there. But, uh, um, but, but when they do get rid of these things, it creates, as I try to argue, a kind of void, and it's a void that needs to be filled with yeah. something, and in part, the emergence of the modern genius is, yeah. is what fills. Well, even the Protestants have a kind of backdoor there uh, in the notion of a personal savior and your direct right. relationship with God. You know, that, so. That's, you know, th- th- this is, you know, your personal, you know, God is your 
you know, Jesus is your personal savior. Right. So, yeah. Um, which is nice. There are so you know, many references good. in the Bible to, to angels. And so mm-hmm. even though the, uh, Protestants abolish a Catholic tradition of a guardian angel or a guardian, um, a personal guardian, there's still angels in the world. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So let, let's move forward then to the Renaissance and then finally the 18th century where things really get okay. interesting. So go ahead. Uh, well, you want me to talk about the Renaissance? Yeah, well, yeah, talk about the Renaissance a little bit and then just make the transition to the uh, 18th century where sure. things really so, get modern looking. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I, I've already mentioned the kind of revival by Ficino and others of these ancient concepts. And of course, you know, we, we use the phrase Renaissance in part to talk about the rebirth of classical antiquity, and that very much happens. And so there's a kind of further mixing and melding of, uh, of classical uh, and Christian conceptions that occurs. There's this very self-conscious attempt to speak to angels and guardians, which leads to kind of witchcraft and a condemnation of that. Um, there's a self-conscious revival of this platonic notion of divine fury and of this older humoral theory and so forth. And there's also, of course, the emergence of, you know, uh, figures like Michelangelo and Leonardo and Raphael conceived as super artists. And contemporaries, you know, treat with this incredible reference, uh, reverence. And there's, in fact, you know, when I, when I speak about this publicly, often people will say, well, isn't that you know, the, the, the time when uh, a notion of genius emerges. And what I, what I say in response to that is that, well, we're certainly getting close. Uh, and, and in fact, we're getting um, so close that in the 19th century, in the Romantic period, when there's a cult of, of genius in the modern sense, many of the Romantics go back and say, ah, you know, uh, Leonardo, uh, Michelangelo, these kind of figures were like us. They were geniuses, and in fact, they use that term quite freely to describe them. So it's natural to associate this period with a modern conception of genius. And yet I would argue that it's a critical difference, that we're not quite there yet. Um, and the, the way to understand this is to understand a little bit uh, about aesthetics or the, the science of, of beauty or the study of art. Um, and um, if you'll just bear with me, uh, it's an important point, Certainly. I think, in terms of concepting, understanding a modern conception of genius. The dominant conception of aesthetics, uh, of all aesthetics, um, in, in the Western tradition, certainly, and I would argue really in, in every uh, tradition, until the 18th century, is that of mimesis. Mimesis is a term that Aristotle uses. Um, of course, it gives us the term mimetic, and it simply means um, you know, to copy or to, uh, uh, to make a rendering of uh, what exists, what exists in nature, what exists in God's world. In, in, in virtually every tradition, um, there's a conception that that the world has either existed, uh, always existed through all time. This is Plato's conception, for example, or Aristotle's, the world wasn't created, it just has always existed. Or uh, there's the conception, as in Judeo-Christian tradition, that the, the world was created, but created entire uh, and whole at one point. Well, the the implication of that is that uh, if if the world is made entire and complete, there can be no further creation, or there could only be further creation by God. In fact, there's a long uh, theological um, sort of dictum that solus deus creat, that God alone creates. Human beings can at best recreate, um, uh, that is, imitate uh, or copy, perform a basis upon um, 
the beauty of God's world, the perfection of nature. Um, they can discover uh, uh, or recover, find ideas that have existed you know, from that have existed in God's conception from uh, the very beginning. But they can't uh, bring them into being themselves, and that that's important. I, I point out that really until the 18th century, the word discover has that uh, root sense of discovering, of removing a, a, mm-hmm. a covering cloth. Same with the word invent. Invent uh, in German is erfinden, which has a uh, root of find. In, in um, Latin, it's uh, invenire, it literally means to come upon. Uh, to invent something is to come upon something that's already existed, right? Um, so uh, in this, this broader conception, um, at once metaphysical and, and aesthetic, uh, the business of art, the business of ideas is simply to, um, to imitate the, the, the beauty of the world, the perfection of the world, to imitate nature and all its uh, uh, subtlety and perfection, to recreate God's uh, creation in, in all its beauty. In the Renaissance, you still have this notion very much. And so, even though Michelangelo is seen as not only uh, perfectly matching the uh, grandeur of the ancient uh, artists and indeed surpassing them, even though Michelangelo is thought of as divine. He is Michael of the angels, as his name you know, uh, literally uh, literally means, uh, and he's spoken of as divine, which is himself a kind of um, interesting precedent in, in the Christian world, because that term had, had been reserved uh, hitherto almost exclusively for saints or um, holy men. Um, even though there's this, this uh, tendency to exalt Michelangelo in ways that are, that are reminiscent of a modern cult of genius, Michelangelo still sees his task as recreating God's beauty. There's not the same um, emphasis on originality, on original creation, on doing something that no one has ever done before. And as I try to argue in the book, you can only have that notion uh, of doing something unprecedented, of creating ex nihilo, uh, when you begin to challenge this older metaphysical assumption and really this older um, uh, aesthetic assumption uh, that the, the, the business of artists, that the business of thinkers is to, uh, to recreate uh, the the extant world, um, and with that, interestingly enough, comes a notion of of, of copyright. Right, uh, to copy is not thought of in this older mimetic tradition as a as a bad thing. This is what we're always doing. Um, when when writers write books, they're simply imitating uh, ideas that that God has already had. In fact. This wonderful illustration of this is this this uh, tradition in, in French law uh, that um, the king uh, gets royalties on all uh, books uh, and ideas that are produced, and this is where we get the term, because the king is God's representative on earth, and all ideas come from God, and so it's only natural that as the middleman he gets a cut, right? Um, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's wonderful, but it's only when that idea is challenged that, you know, all the ideas come from God, that you can then have a notion of uh, individuals as creators and original creators who are doing something that no one else has ever done. Wordsworth says in the 19th century that that's genius, that to, to bring uh, a new idea, a new conception into the intellectual universe is what genius is. And that's very much a part of the world that we live in today. We, we live in a world that values creation and creativity, uh, and our whole economy runs on creation. And creativity, and we have an intellectual copyright law uh, that that 
that validates that, right? If you come up with a concept, it's yours. You own it. Uh, you produced it. It's your original creation. Uh, and that's all very much a product of this shift that occurs in the 18th century that is associated directly with the, the birth of, uh, of the modern genius. So I, more, uh, I gave you more than you bargained for there, but I think it's uh, important to kind of get a handle on that concept. No, that's terrific. Now tell us a little bit about what happens during the Enlightenment and how this uh, sort of the, the, the notion of genius, the modern notion of genius sort of really um, sort of is created? Right. <laughs> yeah, that's a way to put it. So, so as I say, there's these kind of Renaissance pr- uh, precedents. You're getting close in the Renaissance, but people still refer to um, genius, our, our modern term in English or in Italian or other languages, as something one has, right? Um, and it has this link still to the spirits and demons that might uh, people the world. Um, but increasingly, actually, what happens is that the older term, ingenium, this in, innate uh, capacity or talent, is conflated with the word genius, uh, thought of as a kind of spiritual being that uh, attends uh, individuals. And so that the word genius is used increasingly from uh, the latter part of the 16th century uh, to refer to innate talent. And yet it's still something that one has. One is not a genius. One has genius, um, uh, a talent or capacity. Well, um, in the 18th century, or really the, the late 17th, people start referring to individuals as geniuses, as embodiments of this power, and treat them with a kind of special reverence. The cult of genius emerges uh, in a really profound way uh, in the 18th century, around originally people like Newton, and uh, by the end of the century, Napoleon, who were thought of as divine beings, as higher human beings. And so one of the questions I, I, I address in the book is why? Why is this shift um, occur then, and why, why does the, the cult of genius emerge with such prominence and force in the 18th century? It's a complicated question, and like all complicated historical questions, I think there are a number of things going on. Other historians have looked at some of these other things. I've already talked a little bit about the shift in aesthetics that occurs in the 18th century. I think this is important. Um, I think that the uh, rise of a kind of commercial society, the beginnings of capitalism is important. Um, I think that there are new uh, ways of considering artistic production and the, the role of the artist in uh, artistic production, the, the decline of the patronage system and so forth that, that matters. And there other authors have, have sort of taken up these uh, points, and I try to incorporate them uh, into my own account. And yet, I'm, I'm chiefly interested in two uh, contexts that I think um, other other scholars haven't looked at. One is what uh, the French philosopher Marcel Gauchet calls the withdrawal of God, um, the sense that from the 17th century, late 17th century forward, that God, while not absent by any means from the universe, is nonetheless uh, less present than than he was conceived to be before, less a kind of part of one's uh, daily life, um, not personally intervening in um, and being present in one's world. Uh, and with that um, comes as well uh, the, the the kind of emptying uh, of the universe of these spiritual beings that I've been talking about, saints and angels and demons, who really from the, the beginning of time in all human history have been thought of as part of the, the universe. Not everyone stops believing in angels, of course, in, in the 18th century, but there's an explicit critique um, in, in the 17th and 18th centuries uh, of these kind of beings. There's a critique that... that that, that comes with the Protestant Reformation of uh, the cult of saints, and then there's a, a critique that comes with the enlightenment of, of spiritual beings of, of all kinds. Um, and so <clears throat> what I try to show is that on the one hand, the withdrawal of God, on the other, the emptying of the world uh, of these spiritual beings uh, who had long 
thought to sort of had been thought to um, fill in the the rungs on the ladder of the great chain of being or the great ladder of being, um, leading from the lowest. Um, creatures to the highest. Um, that in in the absence of these figures and and with the the withdrawal of God, a conceptual space emerges for um, a new type of figure, and that new type of figure is the modern genius, who is thought of um, as a privileged uh, human being, a special uh, kind of creation, who is uh, not like ordinary human beings, who has an in- inherent and innate uh, power to see where others can't, to see into the fabric of the universe like Newton, to see into our souls and to our hearts like great, great writers and poets do, who increasingly, uh, as the 18th century moves forward and then into the 19th century, the Romantic period is thought of as a kind of prophet figure who can uh, see into the future, and who also, like the saints and uh, spiritual beings of old, can somehow harmonize and reconcile uh, broader um, national or even universal yearnings. So in the same way that, that Shakespeare, who, you know, of course, is Elizabethan uh, poet and been regarded as a poet and playwright of, of, of stature for some time, it's only in the 18th century that he's referred to explicitly as a genius and, and, and lionized as a genius. Someone like Shakespeare is, is thought of, as I said before, as embodying all Englishness, right? Even though he's also at the same time, and this is a paradox, conceived as unlike any other human being who's ever lived, a complete <laughs> original, right? And yet he has that power. He has that power to um, to incarnate what actually contemporaries sometimes call the, the, the genius populi, the, the genius of the people, the larger spirit that animates um, the, 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 the English or the British Napoleon is thought of in, in, in very similar terms as a kind of incarnation of, of Frenchness, Goethe, and Germany, and, and, and so on and so forth. And so um, the, the cult of the genius emerges, I argue, to kind of to, to fill a role opened up by the um, uh, evacuation of these, these former um, spiritual beings, but also at the same time takes on some of their capacities. Geniuses are still thought of as uh, having, as I say, a privileged uh, um, perspective on, on the divine who can articulate uh, universal truths, who can speak to us, as it were, of the gods and, and gods. Um, so that's, that's one really fundamental context. The other um, which is no less important, and it's again a paradox, is that the genius emerges in the 18th century at the very same time that a notion of human equality is coming to the fore, right? Um, in 1776, uh, in the Declaration of Independence, uh, Thomas Jefferson can say that the idea that all human beings are created equal is a self-evident truth. Well, of course, Jefferson didn't really believe that, and uh, very quickly he and others qualify that um, self-evident truth by saying, oh, you know, by the way, uh, women and you know, people of color and uh, Native Americans, so on and so forth, are not actually uh, equal and, and don't deserve equal treatment. Um, and that's a, you know, a widespread and symptomatic move. Jefferson also has, though, a notion of uh, uh, not just uh, natural equality, but of uh, what he calls a natural aristocracy. Uh, special people of creativity, of, uh, of talent, of indeed genius, um, who might, in uh, Jefferson's conception and in that of many others in the 18th and 19th century, sort of fill the role um, long occupied uh, by a, a kind of blood aristocracy, right? You have an attack on uh, a blood aristocracy, um, the idea that your kind of lineage or aristocratic birth gives you uh, special rights and privileges and capacities. And what I try to show in the book is that geniuses are 
thought of in some ways as, as, as this kind of uh, a modern uh, version of this. People who are not equal. Uh, indeed, as, as Francis Galton, uh, is Char- Charles Darwin's cousin, who's the father of eugenics and who's also really important um, student of genius, an important figure in the book, as Galton will later say, geniuses are one in ten million. He's trying to use modern statistics to quantify the emergence of genius, and so he gives them a kind of, you know, scientific veneer as as special beings who are put on earth, as he says, to be kings of men. Um, they have more rights and privileges than other people, and as I try to show in the 19th and 20th century, a kind of whole theory emerges around this, how the genius might actually be conceived as a political figure uh, who's not just a legislator, a maker of rules, but a breaker of rules. Um, yeah. <laughs> Again, more than you bargained for. No, that's just fine. So uh, these two notions are sort of at odds, though, right? I mean, the notion on the one hand that uh, there are these people of incredible ability, uh, and they have a, a native ability, uh, and the notion that everybody's created equal. Yeah, very yeah. much so. Uh-huh. And, and, and this uh, sort of this is this is sort of the it's the coming together of these two things that gives us the, what I think is really the, the two modern senses of genius. One is Einstein is a genius, and the other is uh, Puff Daddy is a genius. <laughs> right. And so, you know, one of the, the, the things I try to show in the book is that there is this tension, as you say, because the ideas are really completely opposites. And so that the modern genius serves as a foil uh, for people who are concerned about human equality. And, and I, I emphasize, and, you know, we maybe talk about this later, but I'm thinking that my next project may be an intellectual history of the notion of equality, which I think is, you know, we talk about liberty all the time now, but we don't talk about equality as much. Um, and, uh, you know, the thing that I would insist on is that really equality is a radical, radical notion. Mm-hmm. It's, it just hadn't been thought of in these terms. Uh, the conception that human beings were naturally equal, although it has precedence and Christian tradition, other traditions, is really a radical notion, and people are uncomfortable with it, and they're worried about the flattening of a world that might occur uh, if all human beings are created equal or treated as equal. And so there are attempts to kind of think uh, think the, uh, one's way out of that, right? To um, to to come up with a, a new form of natural hierarchy that could replace these older aristocratic hierarchies that are being attacked uh, by revolutionaries uh, and enlightened people in the 18th century. Um, and so genius kind of occupies that role. Genius is thought of as a way, and intelligence more generally, as a way of making distinctions between human beings uh, that help us kind of answer the question, who ought to lead, who ought to rule, right? Um, and we're still very much heirs of that today. We think it's sort of natural that, um, you know, that if you do well on the I, uh, uh, IQ test or on the essay exam, uh, you know, you should have a place at the most elite colleges, mm-hmm. and if you have a place at the most elite colleges, you, know, you have a right to uh, what you get out of them. And um, so this idea is still still around. Today. Mm-hmm. And that, that notion of genius plays into kind of institutionalized meritocracy. Exactly. We need so, it. Yeah. Right. And so... So uh, there's this tension then between a notion of equality and a notion of special election. Uh, and I, I try to argue in the book that uh, it's a tension that, you know, has particular force in Republican societies, small R Republican societies mm-hmm. like France or like the United States, where, you know, the idea that some human beings are created better than others doesn't sit well, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so we wrestle with this notion, okay? And as we wrestle with this notion, we're also wrestling with with 
with the, the notion that other human beings are created inferior to others. And of course, this is very much part of the story. When people try to measure genius, and there's a whole science of genius that emerges uh, from the 18th century that I call genealogy, uh, G-E-N-I-O-L-O-G-Y, uh, that you know begins with physiognomy and the attempt to kind of read genius in the face and goes through craniometry, the study of skulls, and uh, there's a kind of medical science associated with this. And then it culminates ultimately in the IQ exam, which very much grows out of the uh, search for genius in the 19th century, um, that um, that this whole science is implicated in not only um, trying to ascertain what makes a person one in 10 million, what makes a person off the scales on one side of the, the scale, but also what makes people uh, inferior. And so a notion or a science of genius is implicated also in uh, an racist science that tries to show that, you know, that white males are um, uh, naturally uh, the pool from which genius emerges, uh, an anti-Semitic science which tries to factor out Jews despite increasing uh, you know, Jewish prominence uh, in, uh, on IQ tests and in uh, Nobel Prizes and so forth. And, and this is a part of the story as well, a kind of mis- misogynistic science that wants to show that women are uh, naturally inferior to men and so forth. And so mm-hmm. the science of genius starts to get messy uh, and this, this struggle between uh, a notion of special election uh, and equality gets messy. And as I try to argue in the book, it's only after the Second World War that the notion of equality begins to get the upper hand. And I think this is one of the developments that we see today. It's one of the developments that actually the great observer of contemporary or the great observer of America, Alexis de Tocqueville, uh, um, points to in his Democracy in America, that in an older world, you have kind of invest special human beings with genius and in a democratic uh, uh, world, a world in which equality is breaking down these hierarchies and distinctions, uh, genius gets spread around. Um, and on the one hand, that's a really good thing. Um, we have gene- we have lots of geniuses today, and yet at the same time we've lost the notion of kind of special election uh, that um, that I think animated earlier society. Mm-hmm. But maybe I'm getting ahead of the story. No, I think that's exactly where I want to go, and uh, that's this sort of second sense. The first sense being the one that plays into meritocracy and is at tension with the democratic idea of equality. But then there's also this spreading out of the notion of genius, so that uh, geniuses uh, multiply, and they are in all fields, including, if I recall. An example from your book, there's a, uh, a horse that is a genius. Isn't that right? A horse? <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, there's a, there's a famous line in, um, uh, you know, one of the great modernist classics by uh, Robert Musil, the uh, Austrian modernist uh, um, uh, author who, who writes a book that everyone sort of wants to have read but never has because it's, so <laughs> it's called A Man Without Qualities. Um, and, uh, and I'm afraid I'm, you know, I'm, I'm amongst the guilty here. I've read the, the critical chapter in question in which he talks about a racehorse of genius. And he's, you know, people are conscious already at the beginning of the 20th century that this word is being used in an increasingly kind of um, uh, democratic way. Um, and, uh, and that has implications for the way we think about genius mm-hmm. um, more, more broadly. And this is kind of a result, actually, I think of like advertising culture. You know, it's just it's hype. It's taking, it's, yeah. it's adopting that word and then just sort of spreading it around so that people, you know, baseball players and horses and, you know, uh, I don't know, uh, politicians and everybody can be a, a genius. 
Yeah, and you know, you, some level you could say that this is a return to the classical notion that you know at least all men have geniuses, genie, right? Some geniuses are yeah. better than others, and, and really we've gotten to that point. I mean, I have a whole uh, list of book titles at the end of the book, um, and when I when I talk about this in public, I show slides. That, you know, titles like Ordinary Genius, or you know, you know, How to Think Like Leonardo, or you know, You Too Can Be a Genius. Gen- there is genius in all of us, and literally that's a, a kind of prevalent notion today that we all have a special capacity, that we all have um, intelligence for something. And of course, there's a notion of multiple intelligence now. Um, and so there's all of this is a kind of illustration of the way we've democratized uh, a notion of genius that, that once had this sense of special election. And um, that is not only, I think, a working out of a kind of larger struggle uh, with equality, but it's also, uh, as I try to show in the book, uh, a reaction to the excesses of the genius cult, yeah. that it grows out of the 18th century and that uh, really blossoms in the 19th century and then comes to this horrible uh, kind of climax in the, the cults around the genius of Adolf Hitler, which is something that, um, you know, is sort of shocking to even speak about, and yet is very much a part of his uh, attraction and appeal. His, he presents himself as a genius, and he's, he's regarded as such by the German people. And he, he does this, he presents himself in this way very self-consciously. It's something I think historians have overlooked coming out of this long um, genius cult that's just particularly prominent in, in 19th century Germany. I mean, already from the early 19th century, people are talking about the genius religion or the genius cult, and by the early 20th century, analysts are, are, are looking at it, sociologists are looking at it in these terms, looking at the way that geniuses, as I argue in the book, um, take upon themselves a kind of religious power uh, and religious uh, ability and are able to present themselves then as, as, as figures who are uh, endowed with, with special capacities uh, to uh, to redeem, to uh, prophesy, to uh, to to ascertain the truths of, of humanity, the truths of existence, um, and also to legislate for humanity. Um, Kant has this line, Immanuel Kant, the, the German uh, philosopher, that um, the, 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 the nature uh, reveals its laws through the genius. Now, he's talking really about art there, but that idea gets uh, extended uh, in the 19th century. And so that Daltonian genius who is one in 10 million is a way uh, uh, in which nature uh, expresses or reveals to the world new, new laws, new creation, new rules. And um, beginning with Napoleon, uh, um, who's a critical figure in, in my account, who, who very self-consciously uses genius as a way to legitimate his power, uh, and ending uh, with Hitler, who does this uh, in an even more insidious way. Um, there's the claim that, that geniuses are uh, rulers uh, of men, or ought to be, and that uh, they necessarily will, um, in order to create things, destroy things, that destruction is a kind of um, counterpart of genius. In order to uh, legislate anew, you must uh, overturn uh, the old, and that will involve violence. Violence, uh, and so the genius religion has this um, uh, propensity uh, for uh, for idol worship, which I think is, is is sinister and scary. And so one of the things that's happened in the post forty five world is that we've we've rejected that. We've rejected the cult of great men. Uh, we've rejected um, the idol worship that had these perverse expressions and and the eugenic science, of course, that, that went along uh, went along with it. Mm-hmm. And that's all for the good. Um, and so, I, you know, I think we, we want to um, think very carefully before we start to, to feel a kind of sense of um, yeah, melancholy for uh, the cult of genius of old. And yet, as I also try to show in the book, um, when we completely 
level and flatten a notion of genius entirely, we, we lose something. Uh, and I think um, that we live a world a world today in which you know everyone can be a genius, but hence no one can be. Yeah. And that we've, we've lost something in that process as mm-hmm. well. But again, I'm getting ahead of the story. No, no, that's very good. Uh, one of the things that you point out in the book, at least I think you point out in the book, that I found very insightful is that uh, there is a certain... There are grounds for saying that Einstein is the last genius. Mm. Can you talk a little bit about that? There won't be any more. So, That's it. He's, we're done. Yeah, I mean, the, <laughs> the book really comes to a head. So, you know, just to recap, I mean, I, I show in the book how this, this new figure emerges in the 18th century who's sort of invested with a kind of religious power. And I, in fact, there's a whole cult of the relics uh, and body parts of geniuses in the 19th century. And uh, there's a kind of uh, way in which one goes on pilgrimage to the sites of genius. And as I say, people self-consciously are speaking of geniuses as kind of religious figures in, in the 19th and early 20th century uh, throughout Europe and particularly in Germany, and there's something really special and pronounced about the genius cult in Germany, and um, uh, hence the culmination of Hitler. Um, that genius religion or genius cult gets validated, uh, ironically, by uh, this genius science that emerges, and Hitler is able to kind of blend the two to present himself as a, as a genius, and it's in keeping both with the the genius religion that emerges in the 19th century and, and with this uh, kind of wacky uh, genius science. There's a whole um, medical theory in the 19th century that the genius is a, uh, a kind of uh, sickness or a, a side effect of, of illness or, or sickness. As I, as I point out in the book, this has a, a long precedent going back to the ancient world, um, but it's given a kind of medical veneer in the 19th century. And you even get criminologists. I taught right about one important figure in particular, uh, this guy Cesare Lombroso, uh, who believes that you know genius is an outgrowth of illness and sickness and disease, but that it also uh, that the genius and criminality go hand in hand. And so Hitler's able to exploit this kind of um, thinking to sort of present himself as what he was, a madman, but also a genius in the in the process um, so you get the the coming together of this genius religion and um, and the genius science that, that culminates perversely in Hitler um, the evil genius par excellence uh, but of course you also have uh, a tradition um, and Hitler tries to exploit this himself of geniuses as you know uh, a savior figures salvific figures and I try to show how Einstein uh, takes upon that role uh, in, you know, beginning uh, in the 1920s. He's thought of as the Jewish saint, which is a, um, <laughs> a, a kind of phrase that he resisted uh, and yet sort of comes to accept. Um, and we associate with uh, Einstein, uh, even to this day, to some degree, these kind of divine powers that uh, others had referred to, um, had used in reference to previous genie. The, the last example of this I, I show is this whole kind of interest in kind of fetishization of, of, of Einstein's brain, which is harvested um, against his will um, when, he's, when the autopsy is performed on his body and parceled out, and uh, you can download it as an app. Yeah. And uh, as the, the French uh, literary critic Roland Barthes uh, pointed out in the 1950s in a famous essay, there's a way in which this, this becomes a totem, a kind of, uh, of Einstein's ability to literally see into the fabric of the universe, right, to do what Newton and others had done before, and who stands between um, the mysteries of space-time and mere mortal human beings. And so Einstein has this 
even after 1945, also um, this kind of religious power that's uh, a feature of the older cult of genius. Um, and yet he's still thought of, uh, in the popular imagination at least, as having the capacity for uh, of, of, of great uh, great destruction, righteous destruction. And there's a famous um, uh, rendering of Einstein, um, the, the the saintly, uh, uh, childlike looking man, as he's described in, um, in the article that attends the cover story of a, of a 1945 or 46 Time magazine story in which Einstein's shown on the cover uh, with a mushroom cloud uh, and the equation E equals MC squared. And the suggestion, of course, is that Einstein uh, is, at the, uh, is the father of the atomic bomb and atomic power, uh, this, this weapon of, of terrible destruction. We know that Einstein had, had almost no role in, uh, in the bomb, and indeed uh, his science isn't really uh, kind of the, the critical factor at play in the, um, you know, the development of atomic weaponry. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet, uh, that's perfectly in keeping with this idea that, uh, that the geniuses have this uh, capacity for creation and destruction. And it's a, it's a capacity and cult around him that is very much uh, on the radar screen of the Nazis, because uh, the real genius of Einstein gives the law uh, gives the law, lie to the false genius of Hitler. Um, Hitler's obsessed with the intelligence of Jews. Uh, he writes not only about genius and, his, and himself as a genius in Mein Kampf at some length, but he writes about uh, the Jewish genius, the, the, the conniving Jewish genius, the, the evil Jewish genius um, at, in Mein Kampf as well. Uh, and so discrediting Einstein, destroying Einstein um, um, is, is, is important to him. And I try to show how there's this kind of great rivalry between the two of them, uh, which plays out not only in Germany, but around the world. Uh, this, this, this terrible irony that in the late 1930s, uh, uh, Princeton undergraduates are, um, are are polled who are the, the greatest men in the world, and um, uh, Einstein comes in second behind Adolf Hitler. And mm-hmm. Einstein, who had been living at Princeton University since 1935 at the nice. School of Advanced Studies, but there's this larger conception that you know that there's a kind of um, uh, Armageddon or a, a, a kind of a clash of the of the gods, um, a occurring on the world stage between these two two figures, uh, Einstein, the good genius, and Hitler, the evil genius. And fortunately, Einstein uh, emerges triumphant, or at least that's how the story goes. And yet, in the destruction um, uh, also perishes uh, the notion of genius that invests them both with, with such terrible power. Uh, and so Einstein um, is the genius of geniuses, the greatest genius, but also the last of the geniuses conceived in this way. He's the um, genius or the cult of genius dies in some sense uh, with, with Einstein. Yeah, I mean, I think that's right. Among people, uh, intellectuals that I know, uh, people who have thought about these questions, I guess they've thought about them. Um, he, he definitely would be the last person on the list. I don't think they would mention any of their contemporaries. Certainly, they would not do that. The last person that when you, if you ask somebody today, and I do this all the time, name a genius. They'll say Einstein right away. And then after that, there's a pause. And now they may come up with a, a personal list of, of favorites. And that may include Puff Daddy and Charlie Parker and <laughs> you know, Jorge Luis Borges yeah. and a whole variety right. of great, you know, incredibly creative, uh, amazing people. Um, and yet there's not the same cultural um, buy-in, right? Yeah, but after, I guess what I'm saying is that after Einstein, though, the, the, there's, there's really no congruence between the lists. I mean, Parker will appear on one, but then like right. somebody's going to say, you know, someone's going to say Puff Daddy. And, you know, it's like, 
<laughs> right. So we all know a genius. You know a genius probably lives on your street. You know, the guy's a genius. Yeah, the guy's a genius. Time. Yeah. Right. Um, you go to the genius bar at the Apple Store. And, you know, <laughs> yeah, you get do. A drink. I forgot um, about that. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's. But it's funny. a different notion, and we don't invest individuals with the same kind of power and and veneration that we once did. And again, as I say, that's um, uh, in many ways for the good, and yet there's a, a, a sense of loss that's associated with the, um, the death of genius too. Mm-hmm. Well, I know I'm no genius. I don't have... <laughs> Boy, could I talk about that? Um, yeah, so... exactly. And as I, I point out in, in my afterward, I've, you know, I've, I've suffered from a lot of uh, uh, kind of uh, uh, illusions in my life, but, but being a genius. Yeah, no, I don't have any delusions about that. So, uh, Darren, we've taken up a lot of your time today, and I really appreciate it. I want to ask you our traditional final question on the New Books Network and on New Books in History particularly, and that is, what are you working on now? Yeah, so, well, I alluded to something I want to be working mm-hmm. on in the future, and that is a, an intellectual history of, of, of the idea of equality, which I think is a, uh, a timely notion. Um, um, but it's going to be a project that's going to in, involve vast amounts of uh, labor and effort, and I want to, mm-hmm. uh, quote-unquote, rest a little bit uh, until that happens. But I am working on a couple things in the, in the, the near term. Um, I'm doing an edited volume with my uh, colleague, Joyce Chaplin, uh, up at Harvard on what we call genealogies of genius. So we have some really wonderful people associated mm-hmm. with this project, and there'll be essays on uh, on on, um, on on genius in its various instantiations. Um, I'm also doing. Uh, I've just really started uh, a, a monograph on. Um, the history of light in the age of enlightenment. Um, uh, you know, uh, light is the central metaphor of um, of enlightenment, and so it's of, of real interest to people in the 18th century. Uh, but it's also of real practical interest in the 18th century and theoretical interest. Newton, of course, cuts his teeth first uh, as uh, an analyst of light. Mm-hmm. Um, Yes, his prism and so forth. Uh, the great uh, German philosopher and thinker Goethe uh, is interested in color theory and light, and so there's theoretical interest in uh, in light in the age of enlightenment. There's also practical interest. People are trying to figure out for the first time how to light on a, um, a mass scale urban centers, and so uh, enlightenment thinkers are thinking about public lighting and, um, and and what this means. And so I'm I'm writing a short little book, I hope, uh, on light in the age of enlightenment, um, but um, it has uh, broader implications because really light is, is the central metaphor for thinking about truth, um, probably in all traditions, but mm-hmm. certainly in the Western tradition from, you know, the, um, the fiat of God in Genesis, let there be light, to uh, Plato's cave where um, the, the, the philosopher emerges from a cave of darkness to, to the light and so on and so forth, the inner light of Protestantism and, uh, and uh, to the present day. So that's a, a project I'm working on. I'm also um, interested in, in giving this idea of a history, uh, a new history of ideas, or uh, as we refer to it sometimes, a history in ideas, history told through ideas, to giving this uh, reconceived or revived history of ideas some heft. And so um, my colleague uh, David Armitage uh, and I are um, going to be editing a kind of a new series which will look at ideas over uh, the millennia um, in the Western tradition. Uh, in in this way, and um, so I won't be idle. No, it doesn't <laughs> sound like it. I won't be idle it, anytime no. soon. It doesn't sound like it. Well, anyway, uh, good luck with all those projects. Thank you, Marshall. Yeah. Nice um, to uh, today we've been talking with Darren McMahon about his uh, terrific book, Divine Fury, A History of Genius, and I want to um, thank everyone for listening, and I want to thank Darren for being on the show, and I will sign off by saying this is Marshall Poe, and I'm the editor-in-chief of the New Books Network, and I hope everybody has a great week.